0: You're listening to The Lid Is On. I'm Conor Lennon. And for the next few episodes, my colleague Daniel Johnson will be finding out what it takes to be a humanitarian leader in some of the world's most challenging postings. Here he is with part one of Humanitarian Leadership Stories, a mini series produced in collaboration with the UN Humanitarian Office, OCHA. What does it take to be a top aid official in some of the most challenging and dangerous places on Earth? How do you lead the humanitarian response in a war zone or after a hurricane destroys everything? What if there's next to nothing there in the first place? And how do you help communities rebuild their lives when there's not enough money? These are just some of the problems facing UN humanitarian coordinators who are usually in the thick of things. They're based all over the world and their stories are fascinating. In today's episode of Humanitarian Leadership Stories in Their Own Words, we're heading to Eritrea to meet someone who's led a UN aid team there since 2017.
1: As a leader, the most memorable experience was in my early years when I was sort of the resident project, the head of the chief of field office in Western Upper Nile, Operation Lifeline Sudan. It really shaped me. I was relatively young, 29 years old, African, feeling like I understood the issues of poverty. And I remember getting to Woodyear and not seeing any social infrastructure that I could recognize as a young person. There was no school, there was no clinic, there was no place of worship. you know, it, it just shocked me that in the year 2000, we had people live in such deprivation. Because I just remember thinking, but how is this possible? This is not right, not in today's world.
0: That's Susan Namondo Nagongi. She's just completed a four-year mission in Eritrea as the UN resident and humanitarian coordinator there. In other words, the organization's top aid official in the country. When I spoke to Susan recently via Zoom, she was coming to the end of her mission in the country's capital, Asmara, her base to plan and oversee the work of eight UN agencies that employ about 30 international staff and around 130 Eritreans. Her brief has been to work with the authorities to assess emergency and longer-term requirements, but also to make sure that those most in need of aid actually get it. What I wanted to know is just how difficult is it for UN leadership teams to stick to the core humanitarian principles of humanity, neutrality, impartiality and independence when you don't necessarily see eye to eye with the government that's hosting you. For the answer to that question, stay tuned because for Susan Namondo nagongi the biggest challenge of the last 18 months has been responding to the problems created by the COVID-19 pandemic after the country went into lockdown. But that's far from all that Susan's been doing and as she tells us, her remit has covered everything from tackling female genital mutilation to promoting climate resilience and food security among farmers and coastal communities and supporting other basic services like education. So let's hear what she had to say when I caught up with her via Zoom. Part one, the impact of COVID. No country, no matter how wealthy, has yet managed to withstand the worst effects of the Covid-19 pandemic, and Eritrea is no different from everywhere else in that respect. What does make it stand out, though, and what makes humanitarians really worried, is the fact that this is a country bearing the brunt of harsh climatic conditions, poor rains, drought and flash flooding. As Susan Namondo-Nagongi tells us, there's also widespread malnutrition linked to food insecurity affecting the southern and northern Red Sea regions, which are the most vulnerable, followed by Ansaba and Gashbaka regions.
1: COVID has impacted the socioeconomic um, well-being of the population. In the initial phases, to be able to control it, there were lockdowns, and with lockdowns means that people are not able to work. This is an economy that relies, a lot of people rely on daily subsistence wages. So they have not been able to work and therefore their incomes have suffered significantly. Children have not been in school for almost a year now. That causes other social problems. Thankfully, we have been able to get some emergency funds and we have been able to support about 432,000 people with some food through food for work programs, with some support in terms of water and sanitation activities, with some health support as well.
0: One of the things that humanitarian leaders often say when talking about their job is how important it is to understand the needs of the people they're there to help. So in Susan's case, when she goes to check on operations, what is it that ordinary Eritreans tell her they want and need? And how has the conflict in neighbouring Ethiopia increased humanitarian needs in the south of the country?
1: What people say they want and need, first and foremost, is peace. I mean, in the last 50 years of this country's existence, there have been only seven years of peace. So peace is the number one thing that people want and need, followed by basic development opportunities, such as, you know, good education, good health, uh, jobs, so classic, really, in terms of the African continent. But in terms of how the Tigray conflict has affected Eritrea, not very much, to be honest, not in terms of immediate humanitarian concerns. We have not seen large influx of refugees, for instance. They have preferred the Sudan border as opposed to coming to Eritrea. But of course, there will be secondary impacts. I mean, Tigray was an important supply route. So there will be impacts further down the line, but not huge humanitarian impacts as of today.
0: Being a humanitarian leader involves adapting to different challenges, and in Eritrea this includes promoting equality for women and girls by tackling problems like female genital mutilation, or FGM. Around the world, more than 50 million girls under the age of 15 are at risk between now and 2030 from this customary practice, which is viewed as a religious requirement and a rite of passage. In Eritrea, FGM is illegal, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't still happen, which is where Susan comes in.
1: I'm proud of the projects that support gender equality. Eritrea is a very patriarchal place, and one of the key areas that I think we have been able to support this society is really working with female genital mutilation. For instance, from 2010 to today, the prevalence rates under 15 years of age has gone down from 33% to about 2.3%. So a huge improvement has been made. And of course, to get to that sort of results, you need to work at the norms level, you need to work at the programmatic level, you need to work at the legal level. So I'm really proud of that work that we've been able to do with the government. Another area is supporting girls' education. And one of the key things, actually, where we're able to see results was helping to provide a machine for sanitary towels. This really impacts the participation of girls in school, especially in rural areas. So very proud of that.
0: Whether it's female genital mutilation or keeping girls in school by providing sanitary towels, it all begins with dialogue. But as a UN humanitarian officer, how do you get across your point of view when you're a foreigner, and in Susan's case from Cameroon, and you don't necessarily share the same cultural values, especially in remote areas where women don't have the same opportunities as men?
1: Accessing rural communities is having lots of conversations with rural communities through community health workers and other workers at the community levels. So we work with the Ministry of Health, we work with the women's machinery and other community organizations to basically have conversations with people. You sit people down. Most families want the best for their children, whether they're male or female. Many families come with a tradition and a history of how things are done through conversation, you can bring parents to understand the costs of some of these communal practices and habits and lead them towards making better choices. But of course, this is also complemented by the legal aspect. In Eritrea, thankfully, for many, many years now, it is illegal to cut girls. And so when you pair the legal framework that has been put in place with working with parents to bring them to understand what the cost of these actions are, well, you lead towards changing the norm, so to speak. And you also provide resources for this to be able to be done. For instance, there has to be education opportunities for the girls. Parents have to see that a change in this behavior really does bring development opportunities further down the line. And I think that helps to bring about change.
0: So that's how to approach communities to encourage positive change and well-being. But what should your entry point be with the government, in a country where there is union representation for women, workers and youth, but where there's no recognisable civil society made up of foreign and national NGOs?
1: I think with a government, one has to always make sure that the objectives broadly are aligned. Because if there's no alignment, it's very difficult to be able to fully carry out your actions. In the case of Eritrea, I think we're working with a government that does believe in gender equality. I mean, the laws were set up. They set those things up. They believe in gender equality. So then our job is to work in terms of supporting with the programs that will help bring that about. But in our work, a key partner is the government. So no matter how far apart we may be in objectives, we have to find ways of finding that common ground where we can work together.
0: You're listening to Humanitarian Leadership Stories in Their Own Words with Susan Namondo Ngongi in Eritrea and me, Daniel Johnson, at UN Geneva. Part 2. Gaining Trust If there's one thing that humanitarian coordinators need, it's trust. Trust from the people receiving assistance from the UN, trust from aid partners who are known as the country team, which in Eritrea is eight agencies employing around 34 international staff and about 129 Eritreans, trust from donors, and perhaps more important, trust from the government.
1: Trust is fundamental in terms of our work with the government. I think no government, including the Eritrean government, expects that a UN official like myself will show up in the country and fully understand their history and their story. So in terms of trust building, it's really, especially in the beginning, to make sure that, you know, one tries to understand where the country is, where it came from, what the story is from the people's perspective, from the government's perspective. And that's what I try to do. So I don't see my role or the UN as forcing a government to do anything that it doesn't want to do. We cannot force a government to do anything that it doesn't want to do. I don't pretend that I fully understand it in Eritrea's case. Um, there are many things that I see that I don't understand or agree with. For instance, the constrained civil society space that is in the country, the constrained private sector space that is in the country. But then again, you know, the government has been at war literally in the last 50 years, has had seven years of peace. It is very important that I understand uh, some of the constraints from their point of view to be able to help advise better. And of course, as a United Nations, we believe very much that civil society is very important in terms of sustainable development. Um, so those are some of the discussions that we do have with the government, seeing how we can support them along those lines.
0: Part three. Lessons learned. So we've spoken about the people of Eritrea, the government, but what about Susan? Let's hear about a couple of experiences that have helped define her leadership style today.
1: Lessons learned. One of my most formative experiences was when I was working in southern Sudan as a chief of field office, UNICEF. I just arrived, I went out in the field with a WFP team, a location called Woodyear in Istinopan Isle. And I was 29 years old then, and I thought, you know, I'm African, I understand um, the issues of poverty. And I arrived in a location that had no social infrastructure that I could recognize. There was no church, there was no school, well, no place of worship, I should say, there was no clinic. And it shocked me that in the year 2000, We had people live in such deprivation in a planet that had so much. And I think that experience really did form, uh, help inform my passion for this job and institution that I work with today.
0: And here's another dramatic moment that stayed with Susan and shaped her leadership style, again from Sudan.
1: In terms of memorable experience of leadership, again it was Sudan. It was that same job, chief of field office. There was an active conflict, north-south conflict in southern Sudan. I and my team had flown from Lokichogia, we landed in Nial, and were caught in crossfire. Um, forces were shooting at one another, and I and my team of five, UN, and the humanitarian team of about five or six other NGOs were on the ground. And I remember in that sort of 10 minutes when we hear what is happening and have to decide what we're going to do, me having to lead the team out of, you know, escape basically from where we were. There was one key decision I took then, which was to leave one member behind simply because I did not want to endanger everybody. We got to a relocation point and to escape and we waited and waited. Five, 10 minutes, the person didn't show up, thought, no, I cannot endanger everybody. And we left somebody behind. Of course, we went back to find that one person, but, you know, it marks you when you have to make such a decision. I think the reason it marked me is at that point, I was very good at accepting the responsibility for making the decision, making the decision, but I was not so good in terms of sharing with others what I was thinking and why I was doing what I was doing. And what I learned that I applied in subsequent years was, no, the responsibility for, to make decision is still mine, but one should open it up to others as well. And so solicit the opinion of others to get the inputs, and you make the decision. It's a more collective decision. Sometimes your decision goes against um, what others believe, but at least they have been shared input into that decision. So as a leader, I think that was one of the key lessons for me.
0: Humanitarian leaders are often faced with impossible needs. There's never enough money to go around. So in a world where UN agencies and others regularly warn us about growing inequality, how does Susan respond to people when they say, we need this, why can't you help us?
1: What we try to do is to make sure that as a United Nations, we help countries better deal with these challenges that they have. Of course, funding is always an issue. And in the long run, quite frankly, we know that there will never be enough funds coming from somewhere else to deal with some of these challenges. We, For sustainability purposes, we have to find ways that governments themselves can deal with these challenges. Generally, this is um, a government that's suspicious about large amounts of funding coming through, um, largely because of the sustainability of those funds. But regardless, we've been able to support, with some surf funds, food assistance through food for work projects.
0: Part 4. Being Accountable to Beneficiaries Another key part of a humanitarian leader's work is to make sure that aid reaches the people it was meant to help. Accountability, in other words. Donors need to know that their money is being put to good use as much as the recipients need the aid or the system breaks down. So how tough do you have to be to ensure that the UN does what people expect it to do?
1: How can I be tough to ensure that people get what they need? I think it's just being really clear in terms of what everybody's supposed to do. My job really is to ensure that we do have a plan. And a plan means that we have a common assessment. We agree on the assessment. We agree on the results we're trying to achieve. We agree on the actions that will lead to the results we're trying to achieve. And we agree on who is going to do what in terms of those actions. So sitting down with partners and being able to go back to those partners, including within the UN, of course, to go back and say, well, these are the actions we agreed would be done. Have they been done?
0: Part five, what people want is peace. Apart from providing emergency and long-term help to people, a humanitarian leader's role is to promote another essential UN value, peace. So how has Susan incorporated this into her work?
1: How to build peace? Um, how are we doing that in Eritrea? I think, really, the work that we do on the humanitarian and development fronts helps to build peace. This is a country that you know, has resilience, I think, in its middle name. They're extremely resilient. But continuing to do more of that, I think young people need to have a future that they can aspire to. They need jobs. They need decent educational opportunities. Working on those things lead to peace. I think um, young people, especially populations generally, when you don't have a future that you can aspire towards, a future that you want to protect, in such an environment, peace is extremely vulnerable.
0: Susan nomondo there, sharing her insights and thoughts on what it means to be a humanitarian leader in Eritrea today. For more episodes from this series and to see short video profiles and insights from other aid chiefs from Burkina Faso to Syria, just search online for OCHA and humanitarian leadership stories now. Thanks for listening and goodbye.